the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Law Offices of Selwyn Whitehead is a debt relief agency under federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking debt relief under the United States Bankruptcy Code. This is Selwyn's Law. Every week at this time, we get to hear from Selwyn Whitehead. She's not just an attorney at law. Selwyn knows her stuff and doesn't shy away from the truth, even when it's ugly. Her Bay Area practice focuses on helping her clients to manage their wealth through estate and tax planning, to managing their debt through reconstruction or bankruptcy. And now, it's time for Selwyn's Law. Good day, and welcome once again to Selwyn's Law. My name is Selwyn Whitehead, and I'm a California Bar-admitted attorney, and I'm also a bankruptcy law certified specialist who's been certified by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization. And as I've shared with you in the past, in addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I'm both a master of the laws of taxation and a master of the laws of intellectual property. Now, because of my education, my training, my experiences, my observations, and my lifelong interest in business and money and finance, as well as the creation, preservation, and transfer of wealth within families and communities and the roles that these particular aspects of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. I also practice a related area, or related areas, debt, wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and of course, taxation law. Now with these areas of law as my reference point, uh, as related to personal, familial, community, and small business finance, I spent the greater part of the last 40 years, both before going to law school and getting my license and afterwards, fighting for the economic empowerment, independence, and autonomy of women, people of color, communities of color, and including in those indigenous communities. And because I grew up as a military brat, and I also helped create one with my former spouse, I know firsthand how hard it can be economically for our citizens, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines and their families in our sometimes less than patriotic, capitalistic-based economic systems, especially after they uh, separate from the service. I also proudly serve veterans of all stripes and in all branches of the military. And... When the situation is right, I sometimes am able to at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors who find themselves the targets of, and unfortunately more and more the victims of, some of the most pernicious forms of financial elder abuse that you can imagine that are running rampant in our society today. So I'm coming to you again today to discuss some of the financial and legal issues confronting individuals, families, and small business owners. However, I must once again ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice. Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational form 
for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully to provide you at least a general outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find the qualified professional help I believe you need if you're having a legal issue that intersects with your finances and or your other assets. Now, to recap, the, for the last couple times we've been together, I shared with you the fact that 30 years ago last month, in November of 1991, as a direct result of an historic Community Reinvestment Act of 1977 agreement, I negotiated with Union Bank, then a wholly owned subsidiary of the Bank of Tokyo, wherein the bank agreed to earmark at least $6 million a year to be used for working capital loans for minority and women-owned businesses throughout California. And the bank also agreed to select and place on its board of directors at least one woman and two people of color, all commitments that it ultimately did do. As a result of that, I was invited to be a member of a delegation of American economists and consumer-focused advocates that were invited to undertake a speaking tour of Japan with the goal of helping educate members of the Japanese political and business establishment, as well as the Japanese society in general, at large, of the need for and some of the tools that were available to enhance Japanese corporate social responsibility, especially for those corporations either wanting to do business or already doing business in the United States it being a homogeneous society and ours, as you know, full of all kinds of ethnic groups. Now, we members of the delegation as a group and sometimes on our own, but always with a translator and or chaperone in tow, or maybe it was the other way around, they had me in tow. We traveled all over Japan and met with groups large and small, including members of the Japanese Diet, their Congress, their Parliament, some of the officers and directors at the Bank of Tokyo, the Japanese Finance Minister, members of several business advocacy groups, academics, community-based organizations, including uh, a group of American, African-American female executives who were living and working in Japan and loving it. Now, we also met with groups of people who had and continued to be members of minority groups who were, although ethnic Japanese, were treated as others. And the most significant for the topic at hand is I had the great honor to meet with a group of women who were then in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s that I had never heard of before. Women who were, when they were still little girls and teenagers, were either kidnapped outright or lured into Japanese-controlled territories and ultimately into the combat zones through chicanery, and once there, forced to be the sex slaves for the Japanese military who occupied most of Southeast Asia, including Korea, beginning as early as the turn of the last century, but definitely during the times of the various wars in Asia between the 1930s and 1945, when World War II ended. And this group of women were euphemistically, euphemistically known as comfort women. Now, as I shared with you the last time, a total of 
eight lawsuits were filed by the Comfort women in groups or individually, including three that were filed in Japan against Japan, two filed in the United States against Japan and others, and three filed in Korea against Korea and also against Japan. Now, the first of these cases was filed in December of 1991, and the plaintiffs were 35 Korean victims of Asian Pacific War versus Japan, and it was filed in the Tokyo District Court, and it included as one of the plaintiffs Kim Hak-soon, who was the first woman to speak out about what had happened to her when she was a, a young girl. And I happened to meet her at, when I was touring Japan. Now, the plaintiffs demanded, one, an official apology, two, compensation to the tune of $150,000 each, a thorough investigation of their cases, the revision of the Japanese school textbooks identifying comfort women as part of the colonial oppression of the Korean people during that time period, and five, they wanted a a building, uh, a memorial, a museum. Now, after winding its way through the lower courts in November of 2004, the Japanese Supreme Court upheld the Tokyo High Court's ruling in favor of the state, rejecting the appeal and dismissing the case. The other two cases filed in Japan met the same fate. They were dismissed, ultimately. Now, as for the two cases that were filed in the United States... The first was a group of 15 women, and the um, case was denominated Hang Yong Jung versus Japan, and it was filed in September of 2000, and it was filed in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, back on the East Coast. There, the plaintiffs, the 15 comfort women, alleged that they were victims of human trafficking and endured rape and torture. They demanded reparations and an official apology from Japan. In response, the Japanese government filed a motion to dismiss, arguing that the U.S. court lacked jurisdiction over Japan's conduct and that the government of Japan was immune from suit under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. The district court granted Japan's motion on the basis that Japan enjoyed sovereign immunity. Thereafter, on November of 2003, the plaintiff filed a certiorari petition to have their matter heard before the United Supreme Court. The United Supreme Court took the case briefly, but remanded it back to the D.C. Circuit Court for further consideration. Back in the circuit, after reexamination, that court again dismissed the case, ruling that the subject matter of the case was a non-justicable political question and inimical to the foreign policy interests of the United States. There and after, on February, in February 2006, the Supreme Court denied cert and the case was closed. The other Comfort Women cases case that was filed in the United States was filed in the Northern District of California, and it was filed against both Japan and some of its major corporations. Japan was um, sued for uh, committing war crimes against humanity and the corporations for aiding and abetting. These were certain corporations that had built, had material that moved the women to the front lines. That case was ultimately dismissed for the same uh, reasons, it, improper subject matter, and jurisdictional impairments of the case was dismissed. 
and the cases filed in Korea, they ultimately were dismissed as well. And there were one, a couple of cases that went after Korea itself for signing a couple of an agreements with Japan that basically whitewashed what happened. And another was the women suing Japan in Korean court. The Korean court came to the same conclusion that sovereign immunity prevented the subject matter from being adjudicated in their courts. Now, when we come back, we'll discuss the concept of sovereign immunity that acted to prevent these women from litigating their claims in J against Japan. However, I want to pose this query. If Japan had every right under international law to challenge these women's decisions to sue it and attempt to haul it into court in its own form and those of others, should Japanese sovereign immunity allow it to take a superior position in the hierarchy of social norms that the world leaders have said is you can't do when you have sovereign immunity butting up against human rights? Which one should prevail? When we come back, we'll chat. Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead. Welcome back to Selwyn's Law as we continue our discussion of the State of Women and Girls 2021 edition using as my focal point the group of women that I first met 30 years ago last month on my speaking tour of Japan. These women are known as the Korean comfort women who were unfortunately used and abused as sex slaves by the Japanese Imperial Army that was in control of most of Asia, including Korea, as early as the turn of the last century, but definitely between the periods of the 1930s through the end of World War II in 1945. Now, before the break, I, I posed um, a question um, and, and in, as part of my promise to talk about sovereign immunity, and it basically acted to prevent the comfort women from being able to fully litigate their claims against Japan in Japan, in the United States, as well as in South Korea. However, I wanted you to consider this. Even if Japan had every right under international law to challenge these women's attempt to haul it into court, into its own court, or into other sovereigns' courts, should sovereign immunity be allowed to command a superior position in the hierarchy of international law and take precedent over the societal norms in the world's international legal order? Or is there a higher order, a higher authority, a higher legal standard to which all human beings and their country's legal systems must adhere when the doctrine of sovereign immunity comes up against the country's well-documented systemic crimes against humanity or other war crimes. Now, said another way, should sovereign immunity, that is to say the right of a sovereign not to be sued without its consent, should sovereign immunity or must sovereign immunity yield to fundamental human rights? 
Well, according to Jasper Finkel in his article, Sovereign Immunity, Rule, Comedy, or Something Else, foreign sovereign immunity belongs without doubt to the traditional domain of public international law and has received wide attention within academia and practice of well over the last 200 years. But the rise of international human rights has called this fairly settled legal doctrine into question. If states are bound by human rights and if the rule of law has any meaning in international law, why are states exempted from jurisdiction within the territory of other states. Further, according to Adal Ami Harmi, in his article, Immunity for International Crimes, Where Do States Really Stand? Under customary international law, government officials, intelligence officers, military personnel, and other state agents generally enjoy immunity from criminal prosecution by other states with respect to acts performed in their official capacity. Does this functional immunity extend to international crimes such as genocide, crimes against humanity, or war crimes? This may be the most important question facing international criminal and civil law today. This according to the International Law Commission, established by and responsible to the United Nations General Assembly. And it says no. In 1917, the commission provisionally adopted an article stating that immunity, functional immunity, from foreign exercise of criminal jurisdiction shall not apply in respect to the following crimes under international law, listing genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, apartheid, torture, and enforced disappearance. As such, these and other legal scholars say Japan, and more importantly, the world has a duty to provide forums where these comfort women and others who have been victims of war crimes can at least have the opportunity to attempt to vindicate their rights. Now, as for the comfort women at hand, one such forum is the International Court of Justice in The Hague, and the other might be to reopen what's known as the Batravia Tribunal. So I'll start with the latter. Although a majority of the women who were forced into sexual slavery came from Korea, estimated to be 80% or more, some of the women forced into sexual slavery came from Japan, China, Taiwan, the Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, Thailand, East Timor, and the Dutch East Indies, as well as some European Caucasian women who were captured in these areas of Japanese occupied territories. Now, after the Second World War, sexual violence committed by the Japanese Imperial Army, Air Force, and Navy has hardly proceeded or were hardly prosecuted by the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, the Far East Tribunal, which was the mirror image of the Nuremberg Tribunal that took place in Germany that dealt with war crimes perpetrated by the Nazis. 
there was one set up in Tokyo to do the same. And as, as I was saying, it was hardly prosecuted, this, this, this sexual violence. And this according to um, many scholars. And according to Professor C. Sarah Soule in her 2001 paper entitled Japan's Responsibility Towards Comfort Women Survivors, among the approximately 50 military tribunals convened at various Asian locations between 1945 and 1951, only one tribunal conducted by the Dutch in what was then Batava, but now known as Jakarta, meted out stern punishment, including one execution, to Japanese officers who forced Dutch Caucasian women into sexual servitude. The Vatavayan trial thus recognized forced prostitution, to use the Dutch terminology, of those 35 Dutch women as a war crime. However, it ignored the similar suffering by much of the greater number of native women in Indonesia, not to mention the female victims in the other Asian countries. What, then, is the meaning of the Batman trial for the comfort women's issues? Obviously, it was an action by a victorious nation-state protecting the human rights and personal security of its nationals in a colonial setting as a matter of natural interest. However, it underscores the common deprivation of human rights to people found under colonial rule. However, I believe that the finding of the Batavian trial, its findings, conclusions, and punishment for state-mandated forced prostitution could be used by reopening those proceedings and bringing in all of the women, including the Korean comfort women. So that's one area that the women can look to. As Let's look at now the International Court of Justice. Again, it is an organ of the United Nations. It is headquartered in The Hague, uh, Netherlands. And it's uh, six principal organs of the United States. It's one of six principal organs of the United Nations, and it's the only one that's not headquartered in the United States. It's headquartered in the Netherlands. And the court's role is to settle international legal disputes. And there's two ways that um, it can t get jurisdiction. Parties to a dispute can, by agreement, basically ask that court to mediate their dispute. So it's a bilateral agreement. Another way is unilateral. That's where one party applies to have the court have jurisdiction of a matter and through notice and proceedings it brings in the second party after a notice period has exhausted. As such, it's been pled or pled by one of the comfort women, 93-year-old Lee Jong-soon, that Korea used the application process to bring their matter, the comfort women's matter, before the court in The Hague as a war crime. So when we get together the next time, uh, we're going to discuss how crimes against women and girls are on the rise again today in places where, for example, fathers are selling their daughters as young as 18 months as hunger brides. And we'll also discuss how and why I believe women and girls need to take absolute control of their bodies, our 
God-given humanity and make sure that no one can control our reproductive organs. Otherwise, we'll find ourselves just chattel. But we're going to leave it there for now. But as always in closing, I like to say here at Selwyn's Law, we always want to stay on the right side of the law, including the laws that should allow injured parties access to the forms that will allow them to vindicate their rights no matter how long it takes. But in the meantime, please get vaccinated, get your booster shots, and even if you have your shots, but especially if you don't, please don't let the holiday season lull you into letting down your guard. Instead, please keep your social distance, mask up, wash your hands, and I'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Selwyn's Law. Remember, the law office of Selwyn Whitehead is a designated debt relief agency under the federal law and provides legal assistance to consumers seeking relief under the bankruptcy code. When it comes to your finances and your rights, seek no other than the law office of Selwyn Whitehead. Selwyn is your go-to finance attorney, specializing in estate planning, wealth management, bankruptcy, tax, and real estate law. In other words, Selwyn knows her way around the dollar, and your rights are protected by our laws. Protect your money. Know your rights. Partner with Selwyn Whitehead. For immediate assistance, or if you have questions, call 510-633-1276, 510-633-1276, or go to selwynwhitehead.com. The preceding paid program is sponsored by the Law Office of Selwyn Whitehead, who is solely responsible for its content. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.